We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia. WinBet is now live in all these states, and the excitement of Win Las Vegas has finally landed in online sports betting and casino play. For boosted parlays to live in-game offs on every major sport, WinBet gives you the tools to win. Sign up today for your risk-free $1,000 sports bet. Download the WinBet app now or visit winbet.com. That's W-H-N-N-Bet.com to start winning. Blue Wire. Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier, joined as always by my co-host, Nick Pilato. Today, we want to expand a little bit on something I mentioned on a previous podcast, and it was a recent podcast from Greg Cosell. For those of you who don't know, Greg Cosell, GOAT, the GOAT of the GOAT, the NFL films guru. This dude has watched more film than anyone I know, and I love his takes on football. And he has a podcast now during draft season, which he didn't have in previous years. It's called Tapehead, and... Somebody from BBI, actually, shout out to you. I give you a shout out on the last one. You deserve it. Big Blue 7. I mean, you transcribed this whole recent podcast he had, and it's the best one he's done this draft season in my mind because it's conceptual, and that's why we wanted to expand on on this podcast, me and Nick, because it's the concept, the idea of is the NFL changing, and if it is changing, how is it changing, and how are NFL front offices and executives changing or you know altering their approach to building out rosters via the draft based on how the game is changing? And we talked about it a little bit on the podcast last one or a couple podcasts ago, but we're going to go over it again. And his basic idea in this podcast, and those of you who want to find it, go to new tape, uh, tape heads. Um, you can find it on Spotify. It's Greg Cosell. His basic concept is the game is changing because the NFL has moved to a more quick passing game. Teams are using more RPO concepts. Teams are using more quick hitting concepts that are designed to get the ball out of the quarterback's hand in 2.5 seconds or less. And what does that mean for the NFL? Well, it means this. The days of relying on one-on-one pass rushers who can use counter moves and secondary pass rushing moves and power to get to the quarterback on these, you know, long design seven-step dropbacks from the quarterback where there's these multiple intermediate and deep routes on every play. Those days are not over, but winding down. And more important now is finding cornerbacks who can hold up in press man coverage, cornerbacks who can hold up on an island and not break the NFL rules. And those have changed as well, which are, you know, there's a lot more holding calls. Holding is a call that was never called 
10 years ago, 15 years ago in the NFL are very rarely called. I remember the old days, Nick, you probably remember this. Bill Belichick's teams used to just get away with so much defensive holding in the secondary because they're like, fuck it. They're never going to call it really. And excuse my language, but maybe they'll give us a pass interference occasionally, but we can just hold and out physical them all day. And that's not the case anymore. You need guys who have feet. You need guys who have a lot of uh, good footwork and a lot of different things that go into playing man coverage. So I wanted to talk with you today, Nick, about these concepts and, We'll start there. I want to get your opinion on, and we're going to go deeper into this, by the way, Nick, just to give you a little heads up. We're going to talk about how this impacts the Giants' decision at five and seven when it comes to players like Sauce Gardner and Derek Stingley versus the Trayvon Walkers versus, you know, Jermaine Johnson and some of these other pass rushers instead. And then overall, your opinion on if he's right, is the NFL moving in a different direction? So let's start there. What are your thoughts on Cassell's general point here that the NFL is moving, the passing game has changed, and Teams are changing how they build rosters because of it. Makes a lot of sense, man. I mean, it's get the football out of our quarterback's hands and not get him killed. That's really what's going on in the NFL right here. A lot of three-step drops, hit your back foot, high-low read, read one half side of the field, and then go. And then you talked a lot about the RPO game and how that's kind of proliferating around the NFL. You're eliminating a defender when you utilize RPOs, then you don't have to block that defender. You can read him. You can hand the ball off if he stays put, or if your wide receiver or tight end has leverage on the route that they're running, you can throw that. It just gives your quarterback options, a lot of command to the quarterbacks. And these quarterbacks are being paid hefty prices in order to make these decisions. So if you think about that from a coverage to rushing the passer standpoint, when you have these freak athletes like Miles Garrett and Trayvon Walker coming out and these other pass rushers all around the league, how do you mitigate their ability to take advantage of your bad offensive line or your even you know solid offensive line? You mitigate that by getting the football out of your hand and simplifying the offense to this quick game type of concept. This is something, if you want to go back into NFL history, something that Bill Walsh helped devise when he was in Cincinnati and then he took it over to San Francisco. And now we refer to it as the West Coast offense. It was, you know, very regimented, very footwork is married to the passing concept. And you don't necessarily need these strong armed quarterbacks. You just need quarterbacks who are very, very accurate, who are very, very precise with their feet and they know what they're looking at. They need to be smart processors. I would argue and this doesn't really go to Greg Cassell's point, but I would also argue that with the, I want to get your take on this, the trend of the Patrick Mahomes and the Josh Allens and these really big armed quarterbacks, it might lean and tip the scale of this towards taking those shots downfield if you can protect these quarterbacks. And I know this is something that Nate Tice and Robert Mays brought up on the Athletics podcast. It is a little bit different from what Greg Cassell is saying here. And I wanted to get your take on that. Interesting. So what's what's so sorry, back it up a little bit. So their take is 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 saying what with these big arm quarterbacks? Well, it's not necessarily a stone die in the wool type of take, but it's okay. a suggestion that when you have these big arm quarterbacks who can really stretch the field vertically and you have defenses that are playing a lot of too high, that's going to remove your chances to stretch the field vertically. So what do you do? We saw the Chiefs do this against the New York Giants. You check down, you check down, you take six yards, seven yards here, and you keep checking down. And then the defense is going to start to cheat, and that's going to set up some shot plays downfield. And a lot of it is based off what the defense is presenting to the offense. 
And Nate also went on and he talked about how he's seeing a lot more Y cross, a lot more sale concepts, typically these five to seven step concepts that are more vertical and more downfield. And it's not just because these quarterbacks can hit these really deep throws and they have the physical gifts to do that, but it's also because the defense is preventing them from doing so. And in doing that, the offense adjusts their game plan, which makes the defense try to get ahead of that. It's just the chess match of football. And then when they start cheating forward, those two highs start cheating forward because they're hitting those six, seven yard plays and you take the shot over the top. And it's something I feel like we saw a lot throughout the playoffs. And with these big arm dudes, it really helps you accomplish that goal. Uh, well, the question is like how... I think it's a good take, but my thought process to that is like, how many of these quarterbacks do we have and how many will we have right right now? Would you on your, how, how many quarterbacks would you qualify that fit into that bucket right now outside of Mahomes? I think all of the top quarterbacks with Mahomes, Kyler Murray kind of fits into that. Only his height probably hurts him a little bit, specifically when he has to throw over the middle of the field. Russell Wilson a little bit, especially with his teardrop, even though his height probably hinders him a little bit. Then you have Josh Allen. Lamar Jackson has a cannon, although it can be erratic at times. I think when you go through a lot of the top quarterbacks, a lot of them tend to have that big arm who can push the the ball vertical. I think a lot of people, and they bring it up a lot on that podcast, a lot of people turned on that AFC uh, divisional round game with the Bills and the Chiefs, and they're like, yo, we need somebody who can do what those two guys did, and that's why we need to find that difference-making type of quarterback. Think about the Jimmy G's of the world. He's somebody who in the playoffs couldn't stretch the field vertically. He does, he's not an accurate thrower of the football who can't push the field vertically. It's something we've talked about on the podcast as well. You want someone who could push the ball vertically and really threaten defenses through the air. And they also brought up on the podcast how this is a pendulum. We know this about football. There's just so many adjustments throughout history to adapt to the opposite side of the football. And I think this one thing that Tice and Mays were talking about is an adaptation to the defense's propensity to play too high to stop explosive plays. That's what the defense wants to do. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, but from everything that I explained before, I feel like it kind of makes sense. Yeah, it's interesting. I think you're right. It does lead to, it's interesting to think about, and I just said interesting twice, but it's different to think about what like how to imp- how to how to impact these types of quarterbacks because you look at the how the Giants played Mahomes right and they kept everything underneath and they played that too high shell and it's a lot different than what Cassell's kind of saying here which is that you need man coverage you need guys who can hold up on island like part of what he goes into later in this podcast is that he says the days of playing those zone based concepts in his mind are over in the NFL and he believes that doesn't mean teams aren't going to use it. It means the days of that being the most effective style of defense are over. He says the corners must be able to play man. And there's two forms of press man, either the mirror match where you don't jam, you let the receiver release and get in the hip, in the hip pocket or the press man where you jam the wide receiver before he gets into his release. And I feel like there's been different, you know, that kind of in some ways, and I'm curious to get to see if you agree with this contradicts how we saw for large stretches NFL defenses take out Mahomes and Josh Allen last year by just playing two high looks. Yeah, I think in order to combat the two high looks, you can do the quick game. You can you can definitely do that, or you can run the football, and you can have a running game and control the clock. And when you have two safeties that are high, and, and it puts a lot of stress if you have that safety in run support, and he is playing too high to eliminate the threat of a Tyreek Hill, that guy's going to have to fly down in order to execute his run fit. So if you block up everything well, and then you have a running back who can make a linebacker miss by pressing the line of scrimmage, 
then he can really pick up, you know, big chunk yard, five, six, seven yard rushes. And then the defense is going to have to adjust. It just goes to the chess match. That's why Cassell's not wrong. Neither is the other podcast. They're not wrong either. It's it's a styles makes fights type of argument. Because a lot of teams are approaching things differently depending on the personnel that they have on their roster. Yeah, exactly. And that's... <laughs> It is all personnel-based, but I do want to get your take on a few of the evaluations he had for both the pass rushers and the cornerbacks based on what he said is now important. And just to reiterate, he's talking about for pass rushers, it's the ability to win with get-off and its ability to bend around the edge, less so those secondary move-type rush pass rushers, those power rushers, though he does still believe, like I said in the last podcast, Power rushers can be formidable, but it's only because the best ones still have the speed and the burst and the ability to kind of convert speed to power. So with that in mind, here are some of his takes. And again, credit to this big blue seven dude on BBI, because I, I listen to this pod. There's no shot I was transcribing it, but he does a great job of that. So a couple interesting takes he has. Let's start with a guy we already did a profile of Jermaine Johnson. Cosell loves Jermaine Johnson. So I want to start by telling you that Nick in his mind, Cosell believes that not only is Johnson his favorite edge player to watch of this entire class, he doesn't, he will not be surprised. He said, if he's the best pass rusher out of all this group in two to three years, he loves his length, his flexibility, his hands, his the length of his arms. Um, and then his deceptive power. He believes that he has as a pass rusher. What are your thoughts on that evaluation? I just couldn't agree more. I mean, I I've, Love the Jermaine. So would you not be surprised then if he's the best? Well, I'm just because you said I would couldn't agree more. I'm curious because this would be an interesting take if you have it. You would not be surprised either if he's one of the two or three best or, or sorry, if he's the best pass rusher in two or three years. I wouldn't be shocked by wow. that. No, I think Aiden Hutchinson. Sign me up, Nick. I think Aiden Hutchinson is probably still the guy that that I think has the highest floor, but I think Jermaine Johnson has a high floor too. And I think the thing that I loved about what Greg Cassell said there was the deceptive power. Cause there were plays where I think I put it on my Jermaine Johnson, big blue view YouTube. If anybody wants to go check it out where it's not even an impact play, but it's just what he did to the tackle impressed me. Like literally he just exploded with his long arm on the tackle. Didn't really have that much momentum going into it just from the line of scrimmage right up into the chest from like a four eye technique or maybe a five. And he lifted this tackle off the ground. And I'm like, dude, the type of pop and strength you need to do that. And he didn't get a sack or a big play or even a tackle on this. He was on the backside, but you just saw the raw power that he possesses, the violent hands, the flexibility, all of those things that Jermaine Johnson has. I'm not going to be shocked because, dude, we go into the draft every single year, Dan, right? We go into the draft every single year, and there are picks that end up kind of surprising. I was like, oh, I thought that guy was going to go 12th. I didn't realize he would go in the top five. I'm not going to be shocked if Jermaine Johnson is one of those top five picks. I think he really, really fits into what Robert Salah wants to do with that defense that's predicated on edge rushers over coverage players. And that kind of goes against also what the uh, what uh, Greg Cassell was talking about just because Robert Salah and what he did in San Francisco was firmly zone type of concepts. And we want as many pass rushers as we can get. We get Nick Bosa, Eric Armstead, DeForest Buckner. We want all these guys to rush the passer and then just disrupt the pocket and also defend the run. Jermaine Johnson can do all of those things very, very well. I wouldn't be shocked if he's picked. It just depends on what the Jets want to do. If they think he's going to be there at 10, they might pick that dude at 10 and then go have a receiver at four and get the top pick there. Or they can also, you know, go offensive line. So it depends on what uh, Douglas wants to do there, but I, I wouldn't be shocked if he's that surprise top five pick that no one's really talking about. I think people are starting to catch on to it now, though. 
Yeah, no doubt about it. And he was really fun to watch. We did a profile on him, and specifically his game against Iggy Iguanu, because that's obviously going to be one of the top tackles and players selected in this class. And I thought he did an incredible job against him, to be completely honest. There, you know, there's even a false start that should have been a sack that he didn't get credited for um, and would have. So. That was an excellent just back and forth because Icky got him like once, I think, on a snatch and trap where Jermaine Johnson leaned a little bit too far in. You see Icky make a nice play and pass protection. You're like, all right, Icky. And then you see, you know, run. And it's funny because Jermaine Johnson is a pretty darn good pass rusher. Icky Aquano is not that great as a pass protector, but then Icky Aquano is an excellent run defender. So is Jermaine John or an excellent run blocker. Jermaine Johnson is an excellent run defender, but there were like two plays that man, he just stood up in Icky Aquano and I was like, okay, there, there you go, Jermaine. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Let's get into some of his other evals. So uh, for Aiden Hutchinson, he, in, in Cassell's mind, Hutchinson is not a pure quote unquote pass rusher, but he's explosive and doesn't have elite flexibility in Ben. He said he has the best in-class hand usage. But he yes. needs to develop secondary passage moves, and he relies too much on his inside counter. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's a fair point about relying a little bit too much on his inside counter. I think he got away with it, and that's definitely something I've said this on previous podcasts, and I think it's a slight on Arnold Ebiketti, too, from Penn State. When you slant inside during the collegiate level, that you're probably not going to have as much success doing that at the NFL level. You will sometimes, as we saw with Andrew Thomas, unfortunately, back in 2020, but that's not as translatable. In terms of his hand usage, I think he has the most precise hands in this class. And then the bend, I, I think that's also true. I don't think he's necessarily somebody who's overly flexible. He's not uh, naturally as flexible like that. I think Hutch has the highest floor of, of these edge rushers, and I think he still has a high ceiling. Yeah, the need to uh, develop secondary movement. Now, I saw him have secondary moves. A lot of them were when a lot of them were predicated on his lateral agility and his ability to explode off of one of his feet in short spaces. I think he can string moves together. I've heard others criticize that about him. I wouldn't say that he's the best in the class at getting to that second move sometimes, but I think it's something that he'll be able to learn. Again, I think he's a very high upside dude. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, his thoughts on, as you, you mentioned, Ebiketti, who's the player I want to get to, by the way, because I, I just remember watching that first game of the season, Wisconsin against Penn State, and this dude literally took over the game, and I don't see that very often from defensive players, and it always stands out to me, and I was like, watching my friend Garen, I was like, who is this kid? He's like, he transferred from Temple, and, and he's really been awesome, and he took over that game, and Cassell's a big fan of him. He lists him among, his, among the best pass rushers in this class because of his elite ability to bend the edge, and that was one of the two things Cassell said is so important in today's NFL with things moving to this quick-hitting passing game with all the RPO stuff, the ability to have the quick get-off and the ability to bend the edge. Have you had a chance to watch any Ebiketti, and is he someone who you might be on your radar for the Giants at 36 overall? Oh, yeah, I love Ebiketti. I did his evaluation a while ago, to be honest, and it was when I only had access to, like, I think two of his games, maybe. And then since then, I've watched more, and I've come to really appreciate Ebiketti's game. But one thing that was certain that I saw in those two games was the bend, bro. He has that bend. I think as a run defender, it's, it's something that he's probably going to need to clean up a little bit, but I feel like he has very active hands at the top of the pass rushing arc. He really stresses the angles of pass sets because of the speed and burst that he has. I mean, if you watch the Michigan game, he just literally flattens the edge so well against the Michigan tackle and just double swipes the tackles hands downward for an eight yard 
loss. And then he, I think he had another sack in that game where he kind of slanted inside a little bit and pressed the inside shoulder and just closed the pocket, sacked the quarterback. He has a lot of different type of pass moves. And when you can bend like that and have the length and explosiveness that he has, you're more than likely going to be a good pass rusher. So he's somebody at the, him and Boye Mafe are the two guys at 36 that I look at and say, if the Giants forego an edge in the first round, look for both of those guys because they're elite level athletes. And I think there's a ton of upside with both players. Interesting. And the last one I want to get to, because I don't want to talk too, too much about his evaluations, these players, but I thought it was interesting, is Kayvon Thibodeau, who he's not a huge fan of, to be completely honest. He thinks Thibodeau is, in his mind, a 20-pound lighter version of Jadavian Clowney. And I think if you went back and agreed with him on that, or you said, look, he is a lot like Clowney, you probably wouldn't want to take Thibodeau at five overall. I wouldn't want to take Clowney if I could do it all over. He went one overall, but I wouldn't want to take him in the top five. Like, He's great against the run, Clowney, but he doesn't offer enough, in my mind at least, as a pass rusher. And so, in his mind, he struggles to flatten his his, his path when he reaches the top of his pass rush arc. That's something we talked about on our Thibodeau breakdown. But I got to be honest, I see it a little differently than Greg, because I think part of what he said is what's so important about these pass rushers now is that elite get-off and that elite burst off the snap. And that, in my mind, Thibodeau has that better than anybody in this entire class, to me, by far. And so... With that in mind, I, I just don't – I feel like uh, I, I don't totally agree with his eval of Thibodeau. I don't think he has the best get-off in the class, but I think he, he does have a very good first step. Like, I like his get-off, but we brought it up Who would you the say podcast. is the best get-off in this class? I mean, I think Ebiketti and Mafe are probably up there for okay. the best get-off in the class. And maybe like Benito. I see. I haven't gotten to Benito's film yet. I got to get to the Oklahoma film. I've heard great things about him. So he's probably definitely up there as well. But in terms of guys that I've watched and I haven't even gotten to Mafe's evaluation yet. I just seen film on them and I've seen how explosive they are with that first step. I feel like they probably have the edge on Kayvon Thibodeau, but I see someone a little bit more advanced than a Jadavian Clowney. Clowney was purely power based. And I think Kayvon Thibodeau is power-based, but I don't think it's purely off that. I think he had more of a pass-rushing plan than a Jadavian Clowney, but at the same time, as we said on the Kayvon Thibodeau podcast, he could do a better job kind of getting to that second move sometimes. I feel like sometimes he would just go with the power and then struggle to get to the second move. But we also brought up how there were half spins and you could see how he was setting tackles up with moves with the ghost technique and a bunch of different things that he would employ in his game. And that is much more nuanced than Jadavian Clowney when he back when he came out and what was that 2014. So I I think he's a a more versatile player than Clowney as well. And I I, I don't necessarily fully agree with that take. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Yeah, fair enough. Let's get to his corners, some of his takes on that. I want to start by saying, you know, again, he's making the case that the days of winning at a high level with with zone concepts as the as the base of your defense are are over. And you know what? A lot of the track record of dominant defense, as we talked about on top of the pod, Ravens, recent runs, you know, even just Dolph, some of the, what we've seen, the high-end level of what the Dolphins have been able to do and obviously the Patriots has been man-based coverage. And now the Giants, with Wink Martindale as their defense coordinator, are going to employ that type of system, which alone has me excited. If they can find the right guys and the cornerback position to operate within that system, that's obviously key here. So with that said, you know, he talks about how there's two forms of press man, the mirror match, the press man, uh, or the press man where you jam the receiver. We went over that, but with that in mind, man, like it's hard for me not to get more excited about Sauce Garner these days than even Thibodeau or any of these edges because I just love what I've seen from Garner, and he's also a big fan of Garner. He says he has unbelievable tape. He played the boundary in Cincy's defense. He played zero man. He was the alpha dog corner in this draft in his mind, in Cassell's mind. He said he's just simply annoying to play against. That's how he describes Sauce Garner. He'll challenge receivers all game. He'll line up and play man in the NFL immediately. His long arms, and this is a six foot three athlete with long arms. Like this is a freak of nature for the cornerback position. Usually, when you're six foot three, you don't have his level of speed and explosive, especially ex- uh, short area explosiveness. Uh, Cassell says his long arms allow him to get his hands on a lot of throws, even if he is beat. And most importantly, he said he has that great 10 yard split to back it up. So he's an explosive athlete as well. Yeah, I'm a fan of what I've seen from Sauce Gardner so far, and I haven't done the eval on him yet, but everything that Cassell says there about his length and the explosiveness are things that you kind of see when you go over just the highlights of his film. But I haven't been through the nitty gritty yet, so I'm going to reserve my judgment on whether I feel like he's going to be the Giants pick. I lean in that direction, but again, that's going off of what I've heard about him and not necessarily what I've seen. Fair enough, but let's take it a step further. And if you are as high on Gardner after doing a full evaluation, would you prioritize him at five over the tackles or over the edges? Not over the tackles. Tackle is is my number one priority right now, getting that right tackle, either whether that be Evan Neal, Iki Aquanu. If they feel like Charles Cross is it, if they want to trade back, I, I don't think I would hate that. I'd probably love a lot of other things, but over the edges, yes. And it's something that Wink Martindale has brought up in the past. Give me the coverage guys over the pass rushers. I'll scheme pass rush. And we dove in deep into his film. I mean, there's no lie there, dude. Like he schemes a ton of pressure and a ton of pass rush. So I want the guy who can cover and play man and jam and press. And if that is sauce Gardner, that's sauce Gardner. I don't even know if sauce is going to be there though, because he could easily be a lion's pick or even a Texans pick. So, but if I had to, pick one of those guys between an edge or a corner. I'm going to lean cornerback with this defense. And it's not just purely off defense. If the kid's a good player, he's a good player. 
And I still think it's possible the Jets could take him at four as well. I think one of the best bets right now, if you can find it on your draft props, is Ahmad Gardner under seven and a half. I think it's almost a lock he's going to go within the first seven picks of this draft. And I'll say this, Nick. I originally was on board with Kayvon Thibodeau because I love Thibodeau and his upside over Gardner. I'm on board now with Gardner. I, I think I flipped the script because I, I got to go back to my roots here and what I find to be most important. And that's the ability to cover in man coverage. And these guys are not easy to find, especially guys who are six foot three with his kind of length and first step explosiveness. And I just feel like if you can get him within your system, like the Jalen Ramseys of the world, I'm not saying he's as comparable to Jalen Ramsey or different types of prospects. But he, to me, is that same type of alpha corner who can take out some of the best receivers in the NFL. It allows you to do so much more schematically, but it also allows a specific coordinator like Wink Martindale to run his defense to the maximum ability. And to that point, Nick, like, I don't know exactly what, what, because Panthers are picking at six, right? And our thought process right now in the Panthers is if they don't trade out, they're either going to take a quarterback or a tackle. I think that's where I'm at with the Panthers, especially after going with, um, not Horn. Uh, yeah, with Horn last year. Yeah, they went with Horn, and then they traded for C.J. Henderson. So I think they're definitely going tackle, which means they probably won't go corner, which means if the Giants sit at 5-7, and seven, Sauce Gardner, if he's not selected by any of those first four teams, should be available. Right. Now. It could surprise and go in that direction, but if you're Matt Rule, you're, or even if you're Scott Fitterer, you want offense because your defense is respectable. Your offense is what really, really sucks, specifically the quarterback and the offensive line. I can't really see any scenario where the Panthers go with Gardner at six, even if they think he's the best player after going with J.C. Horn last year. Now, the question is, would a team trade up at six to get Gardner? I don't really see that happening either, but I can't say it's impossible because we've seen some teams trade up in the past to secure what they believe. Uh, like, I believe, didn't did Jacksonville trade up a couple years ago for Henderson or, or were they just that? Was, no, that might have been their pick. So I don't know. If, I'd have to look into it. I'm not actually sure if we've seen any trade ups for a corner in recent years. So that's something to think about in the sense that they can wait. And it gives me the process, you know, it gives me the, the frame of mind like, yeah, you go tackle then at five because you have the thought that the Panthers gonna, or might want to tackle there, but they're not going to go corner. But as far as like if you're sitting at seven and you took your tackle at five and it's Gardner on the board and Thibodeau on the board and Jermaine Johnson on the board and Kayvon Walker or not Trayvon Walker, sorry, I'm Kayvon Thibodeau, Trayvon Walker, Trayvon Walker on the board. I think I'm leaning towards at this point locking in Sauce Gardner. And I, I don't know. I just based on what I've seen from Gardner and I, in my, in the, how I feel what his upside can be, plus the position he plays, I think I'm going to lean there and, and, and kind of settle in there. Yeah, and that's something that I feel like we've discussed loosely throughout the, throughout the offseason was the need for cornerback, specifically if James Bradbury is traded. But even if James Bradbury isn't traded, they're going to need long-term cornerbacks. And this is somebody who can definitely change the – the culture of what you can do on your secondary. And that's vital to what Wink Martindale wants to do. I, I'm excited to get into Cincinnati's defense. I still got to get into Oklahoma's defense. And those are like the two defenses I, I'm yet to study in depthly because I think there are a bunch of people on Oklahoma's defense that I'm going to like Benito, as you brought up before. And I think Perry on Winfrey, when you have somebody who's a defensive lineman with 35 plus inch arms, I think that's going to appeal to Joe Shane and Wink Martindale because he's also very, very athletic. But to go back to sauce, bro, I mean, that's, that's, if I had to, if you said, Nick, you're sitting here right now, you know, we're, you know, less than a month away from the draft, like three weeks or whatever, put some change. If you had to pick two guys in the top 10, realistic, who would you want? I'd probably go Evan Neal and sauce Gardner. Yeah. That would probably right now be my ideal, uh, my ideal play right now as well, which is yeah, interesting. 
if you think about it, man, you get the right tackle. So you fix up that. Now you have two staple young tackles on your team for whoever the quarterback is in 2023 and for Daniel Jones in 2022. And then you get that cornerback, man. Now you have a Dory Jackson. You have Sauce Gardner on the outside. Aaron Robinson, he could be that star. He could play some safety. He could play slot. He could play boundary in certain situations if you want to mirror or shadow a certain different player. He has that skill set too. And then Darnay Holmes is someone who can come in and dime packages and have some upside as well. So I think the secondary will look really, really strong, specifically if they also invest a, a day two pick in one of those safeties, whether that be Lewis Sign or Jaquan Brisker or Daxon Hill or maybe even Maryland. Nick Cross. Yeah, without a doubt. And so definitely something to keep an eye on as we move forward. I want to get into a couple other evaluations that he had. A player who I want to get to certainly at some point, and we haven't talked about much yet so far, and that's Kair Elam, the corner out of Florida, because Cassell's a fan. He thinks he's extremely physical, a route disruptor. He does a good job, according to Cassell, of squeezing outside release routes to the sideline. He play, has good plant and drive quickness to rack to the plays in front of him. And most importantly, he said he projects well as a man-to-man, man-coverage corner at the next level. Yeah, so I watched Zach Carter's film, and I got to see Kair Elam through that. And I liked what I saw. You could see that he was very physical at the line of scrimmage. You could see he could be a press man type of cornerback. Don't think he's the most fluid. I think he's a little bit stiff, but I still think you can play press man and not have you know the most super oily type of hips. Thing that I was concerned about, which makes no sense because this is somebody who is physical and you can see that, was he was just wild with his tackle technique and missed a lot of tackles. And it's something that I was like, dude, why the heck are you missing these tackles? Because I don't think he's shy for contact or anything like that. So the fact that he was kind of very, very, I would say just undisciplined with his technique in terms of tackling gave me some pause. But I think this is an option for the Giants on day two. I think that can be cleaned up because I don't think it's like a C.J. Henderson type of issue where you or an Akello Witherspoon, the kid from Colorado a couple of years ago who went to oh, San yeah. Francisco, who just didn't want to tackle. I think that's not Kair Elam, but I definitely was like, yo, dude, like you're diving and you're missing and that definitely needs to be cleaned up. And I think Jerome Henderson is somebody who could clean that up. And then one player I also want to get to because Jerome Henderson was at his pro day. And that's a player we haven't talked about a lot, but has the upside and pure raw talent, plus, at times, dominant tape, to really be in consideration, in my mind, at five or seven. I know people might find that crazy because he's not mocked there often. He hasn't had the greatest pre-draft process. But that's Derek Stingley, who today at his pro day looked fully healthy and ran one of the most effortless 4-3-7s. And I believe Nagy actually had it timed at 4-3-3, Jim Nagy. So between 4-3-3 and 4-3-7, which is insane for a man his size and his length and the position he plays and his strength. It was effortless. Like, it looked like he wasn't even, like, it looked like he wasn't even putting anything into it. It looked like the most naturally fast athlete I've seen this draft season. And Stingley's a player who, again, had that dominant 2019 tape. We were all recency biased, like you said, where if he had had it in 2021, he might be considered the best corner in class. And I think I'd definitely still take Garner over him. I love sauce. But as far as Stingley goes, According to Cassell, he has the athleticism and the fluidity you look for. He has, He's going to be able to mirror uh, play mirror match man coverage to the next level easily. He flips his hips better than any corner in the class. He, he said sometimes he gets on his back heels as first reaction and press man, so that needs to be addressed by the coaching. That's something I think the Giants can do. And he also said he seems a little bit uncomfortable playing uh, off-zone coverage, but none of those things are really going to concern me if he gets drafted into a Wink-Martindale defense. What are your thoughts on Stingley as a potential candidate to be picked either at seven or in a potential trade back scenario 
it definitely carries risk. You would like it to be a, a trade back scenario, but when you're dealing with someone who had the Liz Frank injury, the foot injury, those tend to reoccur. <laughs> and you're right. He didn't have the best pre-draft process. I haven't heard the best thing from like personal interviews and stuff like that, but I have no insight on that whatsoever. It's just what you kind of see on Twitter and stuff like that could be bull crap, could be smoke screens. So I just kind of wanted to throw that out there, take it with a grain of salt. But you're talking about a man coverage corner with elite tape from 2019 when he was a true freshman on a national championship level team. That is an alpha dog. He has that alpha dog mentality similar to a sauce gardener. And even if you go through his 2020 film, and I haven't done an evaluation on him, but I've seen some of his 2020 film. You watch the Texas A&M game. I mean, he's kind of sticking to routes, bro. Like, it's not bad tape. I just feel like people were expecting a lot more ball production, and that was a weird COVID year, and then he got injured in 2021, so we didn't really get a chance to fully see him. But if you go back to 2020, man, there was this play against Texas A&M that I remember where it was like a little in route, and he was playing off-man coverage, and he clicked and closed downhill to the catch point, got his inside hand into the catch point before making contact and forcing a PBU. It was very, very disruptive. You want to see somebody who plays with the catch point. I think he's physical. He's one of those players who was a good tackler back in 2019. I want to do an evaluation on him soon, but to me, it all comes to stuff that I can't really weigh in on and it's character medical and all of that. stuff. If you're saying that all that stuff checks out, and he, everything's equal between him and some of these other players. And yeah, I think this is somebody who was being discussed as a top three pick for a while. And now he's being mocked in like the twenties. Right. Exactly. And there still has that elite level tape in addition to the trait. So it's interesting. I think you're right though. They obviously have to do it. You know, that's something we're not gonna be able to figure out as far as the medicals and the off field stuff goes. So we just have to rely on the team, but someone who I'm starting to get interested in and probably I'm going to try to watch. And like you said, try to evaluate and get a better feel for all right, Watch the 2020 a and game. Watch the 2020 A&M 2020 game. A&M game. All right. I'll put that yeah. down right now. All right. Thank you to everybody tuning into the Big Blue Manager podcast. Have a great rest of your week, and we will talk to you soon. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.